0: Welcome, Dragon Slayers. This is Dr. Tom Bittger. As I have said previously, this is a podcast to enable those of you out there to conquer your own dragons, to pursue your own heroic path. Uh, This is not to substitute for individualized clinical treatment, either medical or psychiatric, but it is a hope that it will inspire you to proceed on your path. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about my own background and why it's relevant. Uh, Before I became a physician, I was uh, an honors graduate from the University of Michigan in history with a minor in philosophy. Uh, I spent time overseas, actually was in the Peace Corps, in an Islamic country for two years, where I uh, helped facilitate and run the maternal child health system for the country. I was, at the time, honored by the then president of the country, uh, el Haji Diori Hamani, uh, who was subsequently deposed following a famine about two years after I left. That country, unfortunately, has fallen completely in the hands of the jihadists, and were I to return, I don't think I would be able to keep my head. Uh, At any rate, I've written about conflict. In fact, my first publication was about intergroup conflicts in a part of a book uh, called Violence, uh, published by Little Brown years ago. And I'd like to address today what's going on in this country and what's going on internationally, and give a little background based on my understanding of history. So let's talk about the Middle East, Problems in the Middle East began centuries ago. Uh, At the time of the First World War, the British were in charge of a protectorate in Palestine. And within that protectorate, there were both Jews and Islamic people who apparently related pretty well to one another at the time. Coincident to the Holocaust and coincident to a promise previously made to advocates for a Jewish homeland, Britain turned over to the new state of Israel, the land that is now known as Israel, as soon as Israel began in 1948 there was outrage among surrounding Arab communities and countries, and the first of several wars occurred there. There was a subsequent war in 1968, and then there was a Young Kippur War, and now we are in confronting our current situation. And the situation has been amplified, unfortunately, by distortions in the press, I believe. Uh, within my awareness, there is no animus between Jewish people and Palestinians. There's a commitment on the part of Hamas and as a part of on the part of Hezbollah to exterminate the Jews. That is their commitment. As a part of that, Hamas, over several months, actually deflecting some various contributions internationally that were originally intended for water conduits and other peaceful uses, this material was deflected toward building rockets and building tunnels. And as a consequence of that, uh, there was a well-planned attack on Israel where children, families were kidnapped, held hostages, in many instances, rapes occurred, beheadings occurred, children were killed, and now these many of these people are currently held hostage by Hamas within the Gaza Strip. The consequence of that is, of course, Israel has been sorely injured by this, and there is a commitment on the part of the Israelis Not to destroy the Palestinians, but to do all they can to eliminate Hamas as a factor in their lives. What we don't appreciate is that radical Islam has a very different belief system than we are accustomed to in this country. Uh, Indeed, I think it was best exemplified by President George W. Bush years ago when he gave a speech before the UN that pretty much articulated the position that we can get along with anyone who, like us, aspires for freedom and dignity. The problem is, is that's not true. Uh, There are groups in this world that believe that the path to salvation is most important and that path to salvation is, at times, obscured or prevented by freedom-seeking people such as Jews and others. And as a consequence, we have had the history of terrorism that has plagued us, well, obviously since nine eleven and beyond. So that is the situation where we are in today. And I'd like to elaborate further on how something like this comes about, because we are experiencing these kinds of divisions within our own culture right now. And what I'd like to be able to advance is the idea that we're all in pursuit of what I'd like to refer to as an organizing myth. Now, what's the organizing myth? The organizing myth is a myth that many of us in this country grew up on. That is, America is a freedom-loving country. America is a country of tolerance. Uh, We embrace all. Uh, We will take all. Uh, And we are peace-loving. Well, Obviously in our history, we have betrayed that. So we have committed genocide at various levels on Native Americans, on African American people, on Asian people, and indeed even toward Jewish people. There are, we have selectively persecuted various minorities, but that is not the aspirational goal. The aspirational goal is to become a country that is unified where we celebrate each other's differences and that we demonstrate tolerance. I can recall when I was just a little boy, I was a seven-year-old kid, and uh, my parents dispatched me uh, off to a YMCA camp in northern Michigan uh, in an effort to toughen me up. And boy, did that toughen me up. I was one of the few Jewish kids at that YMCA camp, and I remember fighting every night with cabin mates. And fortunately, I knew something about protecting myself, and I did prevail, and I survived the experience. Ironically, at that same YMCA camp, they showed a film to the kids, and it was a delightful movie, and I believe uh, Frank Sinatra was a principal in the film. And uh, Frank Sinatra sung a song, which was really the kind of song that could be appropriate for Sesame Street in later days, and if you have a chance out there, you might want to listen to it. It's called The House I Live In, uh, and it's worth listening to because it really speaks to the aspirations of our diversity and being able to get along, survive, and tolerate one another. Well, there's another problem that we have, and that is as we pursue various elements of identity politics, we need to understand the consequences of that. If Person A is perceived as a persecutor and person B is a victim. There is a transactional dialogue there that really cannot be resolved. If we're holding on to our identities as persecutors and victims, there's no way we can resolve that. Well, then the formula is, well, if these individuals who are at odds can't resolve it, then somebody needs to intervene. And the, the individual or the force that intervenes, typically the government, actually empowers itself to regulate the dialogue between people. And this is the often the cause of the emergence of totalitarian governments. The government says, we can't trust anybody, we're going to take over. And we're going to regulate commerce and we're going to really regulate dialogue and everything has to pass through this and this really is the foundation of tyranny so beware when we advance the notion of weaponized victims and persecutors that the intervening agency is in control of us all so unless we can come into a state of community and realize that we are individuals that love life love our families love friends love communities want to build beauty around us we're lost so i'm calling for you out there to think of yourselves as part of a community now given the level of challenge today in our political system where there doesn't seem to be a strong capacity for dialogue. And there doesn't seem to be the emergence of a group of leaders. There won't be one leader, but a group of leaders that say all of our interests are better served by dialogue and coming together and working on something that is mutually agreeable. Uh, absent that, the choices we have is to take care of our own home, our own nest, our own tribe, and our own community. Suppose you've been at some time in your life a persecutor, that is someone who regrets behavior, either exploiting another person, uh, taking advantage of another person. What do you do about that? Well, the most important thing to do about it is to say to yourself, "Okay, what can I do to repair what I've done? And secondly, going forward, what have I learned from this experience that will guide my future behavior? From the time that we were five years old and stole the cookies from the kitchen table and said, mommy, I didn't do it, to later in our life, we've learned that we need to move toward integrity, move towards transparency and learn from the experience that so we don't carry the same mistakes forward. If you are part of a group that believes that another group is unworthy, and you've been, let's say you were raised in the deep South as a white person uh, years ago, and you bought in to all racism, there may be a certain amount of pressure on you to sustain those distorted beliefs. So you have to be able to say, okay, what is my opinion about this? Can I come forward and say, I'm no longer part of this? I can't enable this. I can't be a part of this. I'm not going to do it. And so you just disavow yourself and do your own conscious effort to rebuild communication with others. You know, we're incredibly similar as human beings. That's the other issue that, you know, we're biologically driven to connect. You know, we don't function well alone. We're part of a tribe. Uh, Family is important to us. We would not exist if we didn't foster the development of our children. All of that's really important to human existence. So kindness and love is the path. Everything else is crazy. Now let's go to the other side. Suppose we've been victimized. Now here's the problem. If we have been victimized, we can do one of two things. We can say, am I going to continue to be victimized? Can I stop my own victimization? And the first step there is to cease identifying yourself as a victim, to assert yourself, assert your rights, and say, I am an individual that warrants being valued. I need a future. I need, my kids need education, whatever it may be. This is my right. right. These are my roles. But on the other hand, it's going to be very difficult for me to sue my abusive parents or pursue the persecutors in the past although there are avenues to do this certainly right now right now the boy scouts the catholic church and there have been other appropriate targets of victimization that is of their victimization of others so there is that opportunity but absent that the most important thing is to pursue one's own life path learn from the experience and do something for oneself to get beyond the victim role, which means learning positively to parent yourself. If you visualize yourself being a good parent, even though you might not have been fortunate enough to have evolved parents, you can treat yourself that way. So those are the principles I would like to see people incorporate. In the book, those of you who have a copy of it, there's a section in the book that talks about dealing with toxic relationships. Now, the first question, is the relationship really toxic? Is it, am I really misperceiving another person? And a way of handling that is to make certain that the other person, your alleged adversary, really is your adversary. And that can be done in the following kind of dialogues that you could institute. One one would be, To say to the person, hey, you know, you're coming across as if you believe that I'm stupid or unworthy or you're hypercritical or you're not allowing me full initiative on my job. Is that really your intent? And if it turns out that the person responds something like this, I'm your boss, just do it. That is the power coercive tactic that really is not going to work. Then you realize you're a whole different game. Uh, So if, if the job is something that is essential for you, you can either say, I understand that now. So you're really not interested in my input. You got it, buddy. Okay, so there's an invitation to take a walk, get a new job. You don't need to be working in toxic work environments. Let's go back to when you and I were, say, five years old. So we're five years old and we're crossing the street. Now, there's several ways that you can handle a kid crossing a street. One way is you tell the kid, look both ways, because the cars are very fast and they could really hurt us. And note that if we wait and go to the end of the block where there's a traffic light, we'll cross in the green. And I know you'll see other kids running across the street at other points, but that's not safe. Do you understand why we do this? So you say, okay, dad, yeah, I do. I need to look both ways and I need to cross the street. That's fundamentally different than just grabbing the child and yanking him across the street when it's safe because the child doesn't incorporate the rule then. The child is not safe. You have to teach the child. Uh, the same thing obtains with a lot of other things. For example, uh, you know, we have an enormous substance abuse problem. And I don't think we adequately educate our children or even our young adults about this. I think there's all sorts of confusion about it. For example, given, uh, I think, a very appropriate effort to decriminalize substance abuse, one should not confuse that with the notion that somehow these substances are good for you. The other possibility, which I hope is a possibility, is that when we're dealing with a toxic presumed toxic work situation, is you can approach your boss with the following assumptions. I contribute to this organization. I'm a valuable member of this team. I think you could benefit from my input. And I would like to work out a way that I can give you some input about my job and make it better for both of us. I was thrust into leadership when I was a kid, really. aged 26 in the fee score and I was running this, a maternal child health program for this country, and I, I would say I didn't know better, but I, I, was, I was compelled to do it and compelled to demonstrate expertise. Fortunately, I was humble enough uh, that I sought consultation, and the person that was largely responsible for my success was a French physician who was living in Niger, had intermarried, and knew the system pretty well. And thanks to Dr. Shamadan, he kind of coached me through the political process. But subsequent to that, I've never really aspired for political power, but I've been compelled to lead organizations to make certain that the organizations were run as fairly as possible, according to principles that I thought would work. And as a consequence, I was trusted to run systems Uh, What actually caused me to come to grief is when my own value system was in conflict with organizations for which I was working. And I've resigned from a variety of positions. And I think most recently, the most high profile resignation was when I was running the, uh, the division of behavioral health for the state of Arizona. And I was in an adversarial relationship with the government at that time. Who was not funding the program as i would see it worthwhile and as a consequence uh, i resigned and wrote an expose in the local paper and led a march on the Capitol two years in a row and then of course i could not be trusted ultimately i think we learned that if we have a passion to do certain things um, we can do that on our own sometimes so Uh, I'll tell a story about the value of toxic bosses. And one of the principles that we talk about in the book is that you can learn not only from positive models, but from negative models. That is, how will I not be this way? I, uh, I personally grew up in a home where my parents were really born in the 19th century and quite authoritarian. And I made it a point to not use power coercive strategies with my own kids. And it worked out pretty well. Uh, you know, my kids and I have good friendships, transparent relationships, and uh, they call me on Father's Day. But, I, but my wonderful toxic boss story is when I was 18 and I was, i grown up in Michigan and I was able to secure a job as a lifeguard outside of New York City. And it was a, ideal thing for me. So I drove to New York, to Long Island, and my rusted out Pontiac and began to work a uh, 12-week stint as a lifeguard. I also worked coincidentally in the evenings as a waiter and a bar waiter and a busboy, any kind of scratch I could pick up. At the time, New York was a far more accessible place than it is now. And I would go into the city and hang out in various music venues, which I really liked. Uh, actually, at that time, there was a place called the Five Spot, Jet, uh, Five Spot Cafe, which had people like um, John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and guys like that playing. And I would go into the uh, jazz bar and I would you know be sitting at the bar and I could nurse a beer. In those days, uh, 18-year-old kids could drink beer, but you couldn't drink hard liquor. Yeah, also, uh, it was uh, the first time that I really made an effort to smoke. I was a very young man, and I uh, attempted to uh, initiate a conversation with an attractive young woman sitting next to me. And I came to arm with a package of cigarettes, and I offered her one, and a la Humphrey Bogart, I lit it for her. And she said, well, aren't you going to have one? And I did, and I and- <laughs> So finishing the story, uh, apparently the arrangement was that if I worked as a lifeguard for 12 weeks, at the end of the 12-week period, I would get a bonus. And the bonus was designed to keep all the lifeguards there so that it would be clean up at the end of the season. Well, I was the only kid uh, from Michigan. All the rest of the lifeguards were local to the area. And I had this jerk. He was 42-year-olds. Your old guy, both alcohol and tobacco dependent, a power coercive boss that fired me the last day and seized my bonus. So I drove back alone from Long Island to Ann Arbor, short in constant dollars, let's say maybe the equivalent of twelve to $2,400. It may have been far less in those days. But my mantra going back as I would never allow myself to be on the bottom of the food chain again. And my academic performance was actually decent. I think at the time I had a 3.5 GPA, but it rocketed up to a 3.9 after that. And I never looked back, I decided that I had to excel in order to prevent that. Well, Todd, I want to thank you for allowing me in the bomb shelter. Um, and I look forward to further dialogue with you.